the last few weeks we've been, uh, or last week we touched on the story of, of Gideon and how the God of Gideon actually called on Gideon to um, participate with him as God struck fear into the work of the enemy of God in the earth. And it's important to hold on to that picture and that truth in the context of the world in which we're currently living. Because everything that's in the world right now, and if your only source of information is the television or social media, then you are going to be given a very bleak, dark, black picture. The news never reports on the in-breaking reality of the numbers of Muslim people that are coming to Christ in refugee camps all over the Middle East. You're not going to hear that on the news. There is a great visitation of God coming upon the Muslim people, and people are coming to Christ. I was just talking to a friend of mine who works in a... um, in the refugee camps in oh, part of Europe, I've forgotten it now, but he sent me an email during the week and he said, Kirk, you won't believe the number of people who are having supernatural dreams and encounters and turning to Jesus Christ and renouncing their Muslim ways. It's tremendous. But you're not going to hear that in the news, are you? You're not going to hear the advancing work of the kingdom of God in the earth. So you've got to hold on to it. And that's, what, that, that's why we revisited that, that story of Gideon last weekend. And that this, in the story of Gideon, we saw that God didn't need a massive army to do the job. He just needed a couple of people to go in. And God actually struck the, the enemy with fear. And all those guys, all, the, all, all that the people of Gideon took in was some sticks, some trumpets, and some clay pots. And they just made a great racket. And it was enough of a racket that it absolutely freaked out the enemy, and they were defeated. It's quite an outstanding story, but you've got to hold on to that. Now, every time we pray for the sick, every time we engage with people who are struggling with demonic power in their life. Every time we choose to take our resources to honour God with them rather than our own self or the agendas of the world, every time we choose to do that, we are striking fear into the kingdom of darkness because we are participating with a God who is establishing his rule and reign in the earth even as it is in the heavens. And so we as the kingdom people, you guys are a scary bunch. Now, most of us run around the whole time, though, because we have a very poor understanding of self, of true self in God. Run around most of the time in a state of anxiety and fear. And when it comes to the punch, when it comes to the line, when it comes to the moment of pulling the trigger to articulating our faith, to driving out demons, to following Christ with obedience. When it comes to pulling the trigger, most of us recoil from that because we get confronted with a very, you know, demonic powers that say, don't you dare do that. And it seeks to shut us down. But that's the moment where we step into 
our true identity in Christ and we push into the darkness with the rule and reign of Jesus. Now, I, I, I kind of want to push into this a little bit more because like Gideon, it's, it's interesting that just before he, he, he led the, camp, the, the guys into defeating um, the, the enemies of God, it says the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. There's a very important little verse there. It was the spirit of the Lord that came on him, that empowered him to enact what God had asked him to do. So he was partnering with the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in Luke 4, we see, well, actually, we see in his baptism, uh, we see in his baptism, he's actually anointed by the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting, the very first thing the Holy Spirit does as he comes upon Jesus in power is he takes Jesus into the context of conflict. Because the Holy Spirit wants to demonstrate to the rule and reign of darkness that Jesus is Lord and he's now come into his rightful place as king in both the heavens and the earth. And then we, as the people of the kingdom, as the people of Jesus, have had the Spirit come upon us in power to partner with Jesus to advance his cause. So there is a very important reality of the Spirit comes upon to do the works of Jesus. Now, the last few weeks, um, I've been touching, a few weeks back, I touched on this whole issue of guarding our heart and, and how traditionally we tend to read that scripture through the lens of our own pain and brokenness and rejection. And so what we hear when we hear King Solomon saying, guard your heart, is we hear, take all that pain, bitterness and brokenness and make sure no one else will ever get to your heart again because it's just too, too painful. And so we guard ourselves with pain, brokenness and sin rather than with the life, liberty, power and fruit of the person of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says you need to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. So in choosing to yield to the Spirit, because that's what Paul talks about in Romans 8, we are the people of the Spirit, of whom the Spirit has come upon, by which we cry, Abba, Father, I've now got a Father who loves for me and cares for me and calls me son, calls me daughter, calls me child, gives me family, gives me purpose in life. Yield to the work of the Spirit and come alive in God. Now, this, this heart thing is very important to understand in the context of spiritual warfare and battle. And I want to probe that a little bit this morning for you and why that's so important. Um, let me just quickly grab this here just to remind you. Remember that quote from C.S. Lewis a few weeks back? about our tendency is to guard ourselves poorly. And he makes the point that love means to be vulnerable. He says, to love at all means to be, is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. Did you hear that? Will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully, 
Round it with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket of your own selfishness. Ouch. (laughs) Ouch, C.S. Lewis. Can you not be so real? But in that basket, in that casket, I should say, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So we learned, you know, that C.S. Lewis um, talks about we actually have to, if we're going to engage with the God of love, we actually have to engage with real life, real relationships and real, uh, real dynamics of life. Now, in that word, guard your heart, we, we looked at the positive sense of that. And one of the key words that comes out of the, the Hebrew in, the, in terms of guarding your heart is this idea of fidelity. And now, you know, when Nick and I got married a while back now, um, we, we uttered these words to each other. And the words that we uttered to each other were, uh, you know, um, choosing to be faithful to you alone and to no one else, forsaking all others. There was this sense of a vow, a deep vow of fidelity. We were, we were saying from our heart to heart, we were saying, I'm giving my heart to your heart, to your heart at the exclusion of all others. And fidelity has been 25 years of daily choosing to actually give myself, to give my heart to that promise and the observance of it in the way I choose to speak to her, in the way I choose to look at her and honour her, the way I choose to um, sacrifice my sense of provision for her well-being, to the exclusion of all others. This is the nature of fidelity. And this is what it is like with God as he has made a a covenant commitment to people through Jesus Christ. He is saying, I'm giving my heart to my creation to the exclusion of all others. Such is the intensity of the ferocious nature of God's love. He is a God of fidelity and he has made that active observance of his covenant to us in the person of Jesus. So what is our covenant response or our heart's response? Well, our heart's response is simply this. We choose to give our hearts and all of it to the very promise of life that God has said his heart wants to give to us. We don't have to make anything up. We don't have to conjure anything. It's actually just allowing our heart to actually be in agreement with his heart for us. Fidelity to the exclusion of all others. To the exclusion of all others. Now, right now, I need to just poke something here. I, I need to poke something here because right now, the, the, the enemy will be whispering in a whole bunch of your ears. 
And he will be saying, you have failed at fidelity. You know, the best way to disempower that is to just boldly acknowledge it before God. Say, you know what? I have. I've made a meal of it. But I'm not trusting in my ability anymore to try and perform. I'm throwing myself into the fidelity and the love and the covenant promise of God for me. And I'm trusting in his power and capacity to hold me at that, into that. And I'm choosing now with the help of the Holy Spirit to yield to this idea of being his son or his daughter to the exclusion of all else. For some of us that are in the room right now, we have had marriages that have fallen apart. We have had family relationships break down. We have chosen to spend our resources on satisfying our own flesh. We have chosen to ignore the poor. We have chosen to, to, to try and um, run from cover from the reality of daily living. And tried to, you know, and for some of us in the room, we've even put our responsibility of relationship with God onto others, that they would live it for us, so that through them, our guilt might feel alleviated. I'm poking at these things because these are the things that the enemy constantly pokes at us with. And the best way to come out from underneath the power of that is consider yourself dead to that and alive to God in Jesus Christ and his promise over you. What does his promise look like? His promise looks like the life, death, resurrection and outpouring of the Holy Spirit through his son, Jesus Christ, for your every breath, for your every breath. And the enemy in this context of spiritual warfare will seek to challenge the fidelity of God and your response to his fidelity. I want you to grab your Bible. If you've got your Bible with you, or you can just read it here on the screen as I pull it up in a second. Acts chapter 19. Now this is a really, this is a really amazing story, a really amazing account. And in Acts chapter 19, the, the Apostle St. Paul is walking through, he's in Ephesus, and Ephesus is a great city. It's a developed city. It's a progressive city. It's a city of philosophers and educationalists. It's a city that's full of a pantheon of spiritualities and gods. It's a city of economic growth and development. It's a city where there is poor, there is slavery. It's a city where people's sexuality is confused and broken. It's a city just like ours. It's a city just like ours. And in this um, account in Acts 19, I want to read just a little bit of um, precursor to you uh, than I have on the screen, and then we'll pick it up from verse uh, 13 there on the screen in a minute. But I want to start at the beginning of Acts 19. If you have your Bible, or if you don't, just listen for a minute. Now, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road to the interior and arrived at Ephesus. And there he found some disciples and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? 
I won't do a whole teaching into that, but anyway. Uh, so Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? Uh, 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 John's baptism, they replied. And, and Paul said, well, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And he told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. And Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Now, when you read that, you've got to understand the Jewish context and community, they actually were not aggressive to Paul in this, in this moment. They were welcoming of Paul coming and preaching of the Messiah in their synagogue. Okay? They were welcoming of this. Now, but some of them became obstinate and they refused to believe and then they publicly began to malign the way. You ever been publicly maligned? You know what that's like when people speak a wrong story of you? That's what was going on. So Paul left them. He moved on. And he took his disciples with him and he had daily discussions in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now, the lecture hall of Tyrannus, it was probably... Now, that sounds like University of Queensland, doesn't it? The lecture hall of Tyrannus. Well, the fact is, it's probably just a bloke who had a few more bucks than the next bloke in line and he had a big meeting area to be able to meet in his home or around the courtyard of his house. And so what happened was he would open up his home every day between the hours of 11 and 4 and Paul would arrive, people would come in, Paul would teach and then they would go again. Now it's interesting to note that the hours between 11 and 4 every day were the hours of rest and recovery. Prior to 11 o'clock, they were out working hard, doing their businesses, Sweating it up, getting the things going, but, you know, going to the markets, running everything, making sure the economy of their life was going. They get to 11 o'clock when everyone's supposed to be resting. And what did the spiritually hungry do? They ran to Tyrannus's house. And instead of resting, they were saying, teach us, teach us, teach us, Paul. Between the hours of 11 and 4 and then at 4 o'clock, what did they do? They go back to work because the cool of the day was coming again. We're talking the Middle East here where it's hot. They go back to work. Spiritually hungry people will use the opportunity to rest, to give themselves to being fed by the power and the work and the truth of the kingdom of God. That is a culturally challenging reality. And this went on for two years, so that, they, so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So it's interesting now, it's not just the Jews, it's the Jews and the Greeks. So it's God's chosen people and the pagans are sitting together underneath the word of God and being taught by Paul every day for two years. Now, 
I love this bit. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that were touched, uh, that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits were driven out. Isn't that cool? A bit like, you know, when Jesus was walking through the crowd and the woman reached out and touched the hem of his garment, just the material hem of Jesus' garment, and she was healed. I think that's probably the precursor to what Paul was doing. I wonder what, but, but you've got to understand, we think a handkerchief, you know, grandma's nice little white ironed handkerchiefs that she gave you many years ago that you keep in the top drawer. The handkerchief, oh, beautiful little white handkerchief. That's not what a handkerchief is here in Paul's context. You've got to understand, Paul has been sweating because he is a tent maker. So he spends all of the hours up to 11 o'clock in the heat of the morning working with canvas, sewing, building, making tents, wiping his brow, all of that sweat and junk. and just, You know what it's like when you get hot and you work in the yard? All that sweat, Paul's handkerchief. It's not some holy, sanctified piece of material or relic. It's just his daily sweat rag. And I kind of wonder, what was, the, what was the moment that he discovered when he gave his sweat rag to someone or it touched someone and they got healed? I would, I'd like to know the backstory to that. I don't because the scripture doesn't tell us, but I'm like, you know... What would it be like? You know, Ash Brown working under the car all day. He's got the grease going on his hands, wipes it on the rag. And it's like that thing touches someone in the name of Jesus and they are healed. That, that, that rag touches someone in the name of Jesus and the demonic power that's held grip in their life comes out of the person and they're set free to know Christ. Whoa. Anyway. Now, verse 13, let's pick up on the big screen. Some of the Jews who went around driving out spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. There you go. There was Jewish exorcists running around, and their job was to drive out demons. So there is a spiritual worldview and an understanding that these guys knew that spirits were real, and that they had influence over people's lives, and that they needed to be driven out so that people could find freedom. Now, they would say, in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches, I command to you, come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, were doing this. On, the day, the evil, on one day, the evil spirit answered them and said, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Now, when this had become known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held with high honour. In other words, they heard of something that happened in the name of Jesus and they were like, whoa, 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 hang on. This name of Jesus, maybe we need to honour this name of Jesus more than we do. And note the scripture says, now many of those who believed 
now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. And a number who had practiced sorcery bought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachma. Now, drachma was a day's wage, a silver coin, a day's wage. Just take your day's one-day wage, got that number in your head, multiply it by 50,000. That's the value, the monetary value that these people released from themselves to find freedom. People will pay to get out of this, you know, out of the bondage that they're in. They'll pay anything to get out. My wife works in a doctor's surgery in a health clinic where every other person that comes in pays something like $225 an hour to see a psychiatrist. People will pay to get freedom. That's the level of the desperation that people will pay to get freedom, to find healing, to be given a new way of living. 50,000 drachmas. And in this way, the, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Now, I don't have time to go into it, but if you read from verse 22 onwards, what follows in hot pursuit of this moment is a public riot hits the streets. A public riot hits the streets because Paul is preaching freedom. And, and people are throwing everything they can towards Paul to get freedom. And what's upset, what gets upset in this context is all of the business people who have earned their money from keeping people in bondage. The political leaders, the spiritual leaders, the men and women in the marketplace selling trinkets and, and little, little, you know, uh, relics in the hope that it would keep people, people would keep themselves safe. There was a massive economic, like, in response to the fact that Jesus was setting people free, free through, through Paul's preaching and through the declaration of the name of Jesus. You see, and then what goes on is <laughs> this massive people hit the streets and, they're all, and they all start crying, crying out. They go, Artemis, Artemis, Artemis is our God. And because so what they're doing is all that's the local spiritual Greek, uh, you know, temple that's in play here, and they're all yelling out, Artemis is our God. And in the and in response to that, the sellers of Artemis's icons and idols and little bits of jewelry and nice little cute things that you hang on the wall of your home because you think they're pretty, but you're unaware that they're actually infested with demonic power, that stuff gets really cranky when you start to speak the reality of Jesus to it. Now, Dr. Charles Craft, many of you may have heard of him. He was a missiologist to Nigeria, and he has written a book many years ago, and it's still one of my most favorite textbooks, and if you don't have it, please get it. 
Note this one. It says, it's Charles Craft, I give you authority. I give you authority. If you haven't got that one, please jump onto the book depository or Amazon or wherever and get one. If you have got one and it's sitting on your shelf and it's getting dusty, go and revisit it. As a, as a missiologist, Charles Craft, trained by the best, you know, wisdom of the West, theologically developed and sound, and he went to Nigeria as a, as a missiologist and he was preaching about the power of Jesus. And the people would come to hear the stories on Sunday. They loved to hear the stories of how Jesus would set people free. And, Jesus, and he was preaching a gospel of give your life to Christ so that you might spend eternity with him. And they were willingly giving themselves to Christ. But then come Monday, when they wanted their sicknesses, diseases ridded, when they wanted their crops to grow, when they wanted their children to have good health, they wouldn't go and see Charles Craft they would go to the people who had the spiritual power, the witch doctors. They would go to the ones who were moving in manifest power, spiritual power, the witch doctors. And Charles Craft, he was like, what the heck? We've got a message of freedom for life for people. We're preaching this message, but it's void of power. He also has another book, if you want to get it. It's called Powerless Christianity. A good friend of Robbie Dawkins, whom um, I've um, come, to, come to know over the years, his name is Randy Fisk, and he's, he's, a, um, he's like a high-end science professor-type guy, really like switched-on, brilliant thinker. He's written a number of books, and he, he writes this because one of the things that the demons said to the sons of Sceva that day, we heard about Paul, we heard about Jesus, but who are you? You see, if you are at all going to put your hand to, and I saw a whole swag of us in here last weekend say, pour the Spirit on me like was on Gideon, like was on Jesus, so that I can do the stuff too. There's a truckload of us in here. And the power of the Holy Spirit did come upon us. But when we do that, we, like Jesus, will be confronted with a, a demonic pushback assignment that will want to paralyze, rob, and disqualify you from doing the very thing that you've asked God to do with your life. And the way that the demonic does that is he asks a question, who are you? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to drive out my minions? Who do you think you are to take your money and spend it on the poor. Who do you think you are? Do you think you're even going to make a difference in this world? And he will go after your identity. Because if he can shut down that identity of not realising who we are, the authority with which we have been given is pacified and paralysed. Because we don't know who we are. Randy Fisk says this. He says... We realize, when we realise our call and identity, there is something about it that sinks into our spirit and ensues authority, confidence and passion to be about bringing God's kingdom on earth. 
it raises up a people that had been less than totally awake and engaged, and it forms them into an army that is hungry for the next opportunity to see the kingdom of God move. Isn't that a timely quote? Isn't that a timely quote? We live in a time and a context that is very spiritually alive and at war. And like craft, we too are being called by the Holy Spirit to step into our true identity in Christ that we might move in power and that the demons, like when Jesus went across the bay that day and got off the boat and went to visit the man called Legion, threw themselves at his feet and said, have mercy on us, have mercy on us, because we know who you are. From where we are to walking in that as a co-heir in Christ is a big journey for some of us in this season. But let me reassure you, the Holy Spirit will get you there. He will bring you into the fullness of your true identity in God. If we seek to move in power, the power of God, you will be confronted with that question, who are you? Our identity will be challenged, but like Fisk, we need to ask for the Spirit to release authority, confidence and passion about bringing God's kingdom on earth. Now, what I found interesting about that scripture back here, have a look at the bit I highlighted. Many of those who believed. I think this is grounds for basically saying, yep, Christians can walk around with a whole bunch of demons in them. Yep. Scripture will paint it out for you. Church history will paint it out for you. My own life story will paint it out for you. And so will the history of this church. Of people that love Jesus, but are racked with demonic influence. But note what happened to these people. Note what happened. It said, many of them now who understood who Jesus, came into that moment of understanding who Jesus was and is. What do they do? They came and they openly confessed. Now the scripture says in the NIV, their evil deeds. Now we... Let me just unpack that a little bit because he does give us some words to describe that. Number who practiced sorcery. Now that doesn't necessarily mean putting on a black cape and boiling a pot and start, you know, stirring it and throwing in frogs' eyes and legs and stuff. It can, it can, but that, the, the, the root words of that, that word sorcery Do you know what it really means? In one aspect, it means being a busybody. Consuming your life with being sticking your nose in other people's business when you're not prepared to deal with the plank in your own eye. That's sorcery. And the other word that Timothy whacks alongside that one, I haven't got it here right now, but the other word that Timothy or the letter to Timothy that Paul puts alongside sorcery is gossip. 
slander. That's all sorcery. It's all coming out of this manipulative, controlling dynamic of the power of darkness. And it's people in the light of Jesus realizing, oh my God, I'm operating out of control and manipulation and sorcery. It's witchcraft and I didn't even realize it. They came and threw themselves at Paul and brought all of the junk that was associated with it and said, please liberate me from this. I want the freedom of Jesus Christ in my life. That's what was going on. How's the plank in your own eye going? You been working on that lately? Or has your nose and your snout been in too busy in someone else's business? Because that's what sorcery looks like. And then when you get your snout in other people's business, you start thinking you can architect and orchestrate and manipulate them into being a better human being when you can't. It's the work of the grace of God that does through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Lordship of Jesus Christ that will. Jesus has addressed that very spirit, that busybody, sorcerous spirit in Matthew 7. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? Whoa. Have mercy on me, Lord. You see, power flows from fidelity. In the context of kingdom advance and spiritual warfare, the most important aspect of our lives is the fidelity of our heart to Jesus. For from fidelity flows power. From fidelity flows authority and flows identity. The kingdom of God through the believer is from the heart. We must guard our heart by the power of a, fidelity, a relationship of fidelity with Jesus at the exclusion of all others. And I've just articulated what that looks like in Acts chapter 19 of people living in a town just like our town. They want to rid themselves and cut themselves free from every trinket, relic, icon, picture, gift we were once given that someone brought home from us because they thought it was a really nice gift because they saw it somewhere on a mountain somewhere in, in India or Asia. That's actually, actually a doorway, a, 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 a vice, an, an, act, an, act, an avenue for the kingdom of darkness to bring influence into your, into your life. Now, you might be thinking and listening to that with our Western worldview and going, come on, man. Look, the number of homes that Nicole and I have walked through with people and prayed through I know one family who were dealing with infidelity, which was really interesting because Artemis, she was the goddess of fertility in Ephesus. So if people wanted babies, they would go to her and they would pay her for her blessing. But she was such a vicious spirit. She, would also, she was also known as a spirit that would abort children and kill children, and demand the lives of children. Such was that spirit. Well, this, of recent times, Nicole and I, we have visited with people, and we've prayed through their home, and they wrestling with infertility. And we just saw some 
icons and things in the house and said, hey, you know, the Lord's just brought our attention to that. Can you tell us a bit of the story of that? And so they told us the backstory of of the spiritual dynamics that are attached to that gift they were once given by someone that loves them. And we said, we know that you might have a, a strong emotional and sentimental attachment to that, but we think if you ask Jesus, he might be in agreement with us, but you go and ask him. We think you might need to get rid of that out of your home. You go away and pray about it, and then you let us know what Jesus says. So they did. They diligently took responsibility for their relationship with Jesus, and they bowed themselves before him, and they said, Jesus, can you tell us about this thing, this icon? And so he did, and he told them, it's got to go. And so they rang us and they said, would you come and please help us get rid of this? We said, sure, let's do it. So we just went over and we said, let's take it out the backyard and let's just, let's, let's just like smash it up and set it on fire. Bit like what they do in Acts 19. And you know, after burning that thing and breaking the power of every demonic spirit attached to that thing that was in their home, they fell pregnant. Don't... This is real deal, guys. This, we are living in a spiritual context and contest. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their sin. They renounced, oh God, I've been involved in that. Oh God, I'm sorry I hung that in my house. Oh God, I'm sorry I looked to that in the hope that you would somehow bless us. Oh God, I'm sorry that when you nudged me and said, get rid of that, I held on to it because I thought it was important. But rather than obey you and get rid of it, I chose to hang on to it. Oh God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've been worried. I've been more invested in putting my snout in other people's spiritual life and trying to control and manipulate them than deal with the own plank in my own eye. Power flows from fidelity to the exclusion of all others and everything else. Now hear that, broken hearts. Hear that, hearts, where the enemy would want to be whispering in your ear right now, no hope for you, your heart hasn't been able to be true to Jesus. No, come boldly. Throw yourself before Jesus and openly confess to him. I wish I had a big drum. I, I, I kind of had a picture of a big 44-gallon drum just sitting down here right now, you know? And people just, let's just start a fire in it. And just start writing stuff down and just like throw it into the fire and confess it. Confession is an, is an outward articulation of the, oh, God, Have mercy on me. This stuff has had hold on me and I've given it power. I want you and you alone. I had just a big picture of people just like, maybe we should do that by the end of the month. eh? Have a big burn off. Bring every trinket, bring every icon, bring every special gift. Bring, I know this is going to sound hard, to do because I'm figuring out how do we do it 
but bring, bring the tattoos that are on our bodies to other gods. Bring them. I don't know how we do that, but we'll sort it out. But bring them. Bring the ones that we've put on our body to glorify others than Jesus. If you've got them on your body glorifying Jesus, God bless you in that. May your life be an icon to the fact that you understand the plank in your own eye and are so thankful for the mercy that you found. And now you understand who you are and you walk with diligence and faithfulness to Christ. But bring it all. Bring the magazines, bring the computers, bring them all. Bring the T-shirts, bring the, just the paintings, bring them. I'm just trying to pick a date now when we're going to do this. <laughs> oh, uh, uh, sorry? Dacobin tip. That's where it'll end up. <laughs> the tip. That's where it'll end up. Yes. I think we might go for December 13. Not, not next week and not next week, the one after. I, I want to do it before everyone shoots off on holidays. That's the only thing. Let's go for the 13. Sunday 13. Bring it all. Bring anything that you've even got to like a half or like, oh, I'm unsure about that picture. Listen to the Holy Spirit. He will talk to you. I bring a, we'll bring a skip in. We'll bring a skip in. You know, you know just a flip side of that, I was listening to someone once tell a story about... I don't know why I'm going here, but bringing offerings, financial offerings to God. And what they would do is they would put 44-gallon drums out the front. And that that was in a third-world, poverty-stricken nation. And every week, those 44-gallon drums would overflow for the sake of the kingdom of God in the earth. (laughs) Crazy. God is so amazing. But friends, this morning, God is, is, is after our hearts. God wants our hearts. He wants us to know who we are. Because in the context in which we live, that will be the point of challenge. That will be the very first thing that confronts us. God wants us to move in power. Let me finish here. Oh, yeah. If you're wondering what infidelity looks like, Here's a little take home. It's anything that you have to consult before saying yes to Jesus. That's what infidelity looks like. Because Jesus is, for the Christian, for the follower of him, Jesus is Lord. Lord. King. Master. Good friend. First risen brother. That's, that's what infidelity looks like when you have to consult anything other than before you can say yes to Jesus. That's a little pointy, isn't it? That's a little pointy. But friends, that's why Solomon said, above all else, guard your heart because everything we do in life flows from it. Everything we do flows from the health and the condition of our heart.
Um, let's, uh, let's pray and then um, as we do... As we do, and I, I just want to say, in Acts 19, that was a regional outpouring of the Holy Spirit on a city. When there's a work of the Holy Spirit going on in a city, it's manifesting because the hearts of the people are being returned and given to God. That's what a move of God looks like. Hearts coming home. Gosh, I love that song we sang this morning. I'm running home into your arms, Father. I'm running I'm bringing my heart back to you, to the exclusion of all else. Let's pray. Just stay seated where you are. Father, these, these are some really challenging kingdom truths that you've been having us sort of meditate on this morning, Lord, as we've considered your scriptures and your character and your ways. But God, deep in the undercurrent of everything that's going on here this morning, we can hear the cry of your heart, of, of love, of fidelity, for people saying, come to me. My kingdom is for you. Come to me. Receive Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you be so kind this morning and generous? Would you be so kind and generous as to just turn up that, that volume just a little bit, just enough so we can't ignore you. And where our hearts have been divided, where we've sought to consult other things, where we've even unknowingly given ourselves to demonic influence, Oh, Holy Spirit, just come and show us and come and liberate us from the power of that right now, I ask in Jesus' name. And restore unto our hearts one love, one love, love for Jesus. Holy Spirit, call us again deeper more powerfully in this season than perhaps our lives have ever experienced to a fidelity of love for Jesus and his greater glory in the earth and the well-being and the freedom of others around us and even for our own sense of joy. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Just listen, folks. Listen to the Holy Spirit for just a minute. Just listen to him.
Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their sin. There's some of you in this room right now. You see, there was a reason why Paul said it in Romans as well about confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you'll be saved. There's something very powerful of a spiritual dynamic that articulates the growing health of the Lordship of Christ in a person's heart to come out of their mouth. And at the same time, there is a power to deliver people from the things that they know have held them and beset them and bound them and just been a vice and a grip. And it comes loose. It comes free from them as they bring a confession of that, a a verbal articulation of that vice, of that thing. I I, want to ask, um, now I don't normally do this, but I'm going to do this. I want to. I want to ask. Uh, here, there, here. I got. I got. I got four of the six elders of the church that are here this morning. I don't normally do this, I, I, but I, but I feel to do this. So Neil and Kate, and and Dave and Carol, Pete and Gail. Or Gail's working next door with the children. Pete's not here this morning. But I'm going to ask. Can you can you guys just come up here for me this morning? And this isn't, we're not doing a public broadcast system here, but what we're doing is we're creating a pathway and, a, and an opportunity for you to confess sin. Confess practices that you've been hooked on and addicted to and struggled to get free from. There's a, there's a confessional that, that brings it loose. I mean, you know, it's, it's a bit, I think the Catholics do a really good job of this. They create space for people to articulate I want freedom from this God, and I'm sorry. Now, these guys are just up the front here, and I want you to feel free this morning just to come up to whoever you feel most comfortable with and just whisper in their ear, this is what I'm struggling with. Help me, Jesus. Forgive me of my sin. And you know what these guys are going to do? They're going to say these words to your, to your ear and to your heart. They're going to say, friend, your sin is forgiven. I now declare you are free. Now go and sin no more. It's that, it's that simple. It's that, it's that simple and freeing. So why don't you, you sort of move over there a bit more and you're, you're right, Kate, why don't you sort of move around here a bit more and, and, I, you know, and, and please use your discernment as to the nature of your confession as to who you're coming to see, okay? Just use some discernment about that. The altar of the Lord is open. 